This special episode of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is brought to you by Gilbert and Frank's Harmless Nut Coffee. This place smells like coffee. Uh-huh. Just pour me another cup of that crazy coffee. <laughs> Look for it in the bright orange can. wanted to meet this guy, but I wonder why he has to meet me on a night like this. Come in. You know why I've asked you here. I don't have a clue. You must convince the villagers that I'm harmless. I'll try, but, you know, when they see you... You're trembling. Are you afraid? No, I'm freezing my ass off. Have some nice hot coffee. It's harmless, not. Like it? Taste uh, great. Harmless, not. Has found a way of making coffee richer without being bitter. You can say that again. Harmless, not. Has found a way of making coffee richer without being bitter. It's Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Santopadre. Well, it's our favorite time of the year again, and for our annual Halloween episode this year, we're celebrating the life and career of one of the world's most celebrated performers, the legendary Boris Karloff. And with a panel discussion about his life and career, and about the newly released 2021 documentary, Boris Karloff, The Man Behind the Monster. And joining Frank and I are not one, but three, count them three, Karloff experts associated with the new documentary. Gregory Mank is a journalist, historian, occasional actor, lifelong monster kid, and the author of numerous books, including It's Alive, the classic cinema saga of Frankenstein, One Man Crazy, the life and death of Colin Clive, Bela Lugosi, and Boris Karloff, the expanded story of a haunting collaboration. And the upcoming sequel to his 2014 book, The Very Witching Time of Night, Dark Alleys of Classic Horror Cinema. He's also scripted and narrated audio commentaries and DVD releases of the classic Karloff films the Mask of Fu Manchu, and The Black Cat. And did we mention that Elsa Lanchester herself taught him how to hiss like the Bride of Frankenstein? Ron McCluskey is a writer, producer, and presenter of the long-running series Classic Movies with Ron McCluskey, as well as the curator of Frankenstein artwork, featuring depictions and interpretations of Frankenstein's monster, 
from artists all over the world. He's also the co-writer and one of the executive producers of the new documentary, which he was inspired to work on after receiving the gift of a Frankenstein Aurora model at the tender age of seven. And our returning champion, Sarah Karloff, is a filmmaker, entrepreneur, public speaker, and the only child of Boris Karloff. She's the official keeper of the Karloff flame, having founded Karloff Enterprises back in 1993 to supervise and protect the persona and licensing rights relating to her famous father through the official website karloff.com she helps to oversee the marketing and merchandising of her father's likeness as she travels all over the world greeting fans hosting events and keeping her father's personal and professional legacy alive and so without further ado Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with his co-host Frank Santo Padre are happy to introduce the bone-chilling Gregory Bank, the terrifying Ron McCluskey, and most frightening of all, Welcome, all three. Welcome to the show, everyone. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that was coming, Gil. Bravo. Beautiful. Oh, my God. When you say Santo Padre, it's like it's like the way the uh, Boris impersonators would say, Antipasto. <laughs> that was good. Thank you. Coming from Sarah, that's the ultimate compliment. How about that? It was intended. It was intended to be. Welcome all, and and thank you guys for your patience in setting this up. This is the first episode we're attempting from four different states. And, and, <laughs> so, and wow. speak. Oh, and before I forget, uh, Sarah, have you ever met Boris Garlop? <laughs> <laughs> Not recently. <laughs> Sarah was with us before, I think, what, 2015 you were here, Sarah? I think so, yes. We, you were maybe one of our first 25 guests, and they said it wouldn't last. And here we are approaching 400 episodes. Oh, my goodness. Really? I know. So, yeah, so welcome back. This is a special occasion and a special uh, special episode. Now, well, thank you for having me back. I must although, have behaved better then. You were great. <laughs> although Boris Karloff had already been working as a character actor, you still... I guess going from paycheck to paycheck, when a story similar to Lana Turner in Schwab's uh, candies, uh, Schwab's uh, drugstore happened to him. And can all three of you say what happened, how he was discovered? Start with you, Sarah. How, how, how James Whale found him uh, for the role. Well, he really wasn't lost. But um, he had just finished doing uh, Criminal Code, 
and uh, he was on the lot at Universal and was in the commissary. And as he said, in his best suit and thought he looked really terrific. And James Whale asked him to join, had sent someone over to my father's table and asked him to join him for a cup of coffee. And um, uh, Mr. Whale um, asked him if he would uh, like to test for a part of the monster in this Frankenstein film. My father was a bit taken aback since he thought he would look slightly better than a monster that day, but he was delighted to work doing any part because he'd spent the last 10 years in Hollywood um, when nobody noticed him, and he was delighted to be offered the opportunity to test for any anything. So um, he went off with Jack Whale, Jack, Jack Pierce, sorry, and he and Jack worked together, I believe, for two weeks on the makeup. And um, uh, Jack was had had made a point of studying anatomy and what somebody would look like is if a brain had been implanted in his in his skull. And Jack said that my father was patient as a horse, and my father said that Jack was an absolute genius makeup man, the best in the business. And after two weeks, they came up with this test makeup, and um, the rest is cinema history. Let's let's also just recap too uh, for for people that don't know, and and uh, a lot of people do know this. But how how many films under his belt before <laughs> before? Uh, he became an overnight sensation. Well, he, Frankenstein was his eighty-first film. Eighty-first film. Film, and my father said hardly anyone had seen the first eighty. <laughs> oh. And so I, the name Boris Karloff meant nothing, uh, I guess, to the to the public before Frankenstein. Absolutely, um, it it really meant nothing, and of course, it wasn't his real name. His real name was William Henry Pratt. He was British, and um, somewhere along the line during the first 10 years my father spent in British Columbia doing repertory theater, he changed his name because he felt Pratt would not be a particularly fortunate name up on a marquee, uh, as in Prattfall. But he changed his name, oh, I think in about uh, 1915 uh, when he was up in British Columbia. And when asked where the name Boris Karloff came from, he always said, well, Karloff was somewhere way back in his mother's side of the family, although no biographer or historian has ever found it. And Boris simply came from thin air. So wow, that's I'm sticking fun. with it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sticking with his story. That, Greg, in your book... Uh, and wonderful book, uh, one of your great books, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff book. There is, uh, Sarah tells, I'm wondering if it's the official version of, of how he was cast or, or one version, because there's speculation that what, that, that Wales partner, uh, David Lewis had recommended him for the part after seeing criminal code. Yes. Even Bela, even Bela claimed that he discovered Karloff. <laughs> Yes, he did. Uh, strangely enough, uh, he, 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 Lugosi told the story frequently in later years that, um, uh, you know, that he was, of course, supposed to play the monster and that he was very unhappy about it, felt it was an sure. insult 
to play a role like that. And that Universal said to him that, you know, he could he could give it up if he could find an actor to replace him. Uh, and that he went and scouted the agencies and came upon Boris Karloff. And really, with, with all respect to Beta Lugosi, uh, that, that story just really doesn't have a whole lot of credibility. No. Uh, you know, at all, because that's not the way the studios work. They certainly weren't going to say to an actor, yeah, go out and find somebody else and bring him in and we'll use him. Uh, so um, so that was one story. And yes, you mentioned about uh, David Lewis, who was the partner of James right. Whale, had seen him in the play The Criminal Code and said, you have to see this actor. He's got this tremendous face. Uh, it, it's just really, really incredible. And, 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 and uh, uh, you know, he has this terrific sense of menace and, and he would be a wonderful monster. And uh, it's interesting that, uh, as Sarah says, uh, Boris Karloff was by no means a name uh, at that point in 1931. Uh, it was fortunate, though, that he was working steadily uh, and that uh, doing one picture after another since the criminal code, uh, again, none of them bringing him stardom, but at least he was working steadily. And he was living at the time in 1931, at the time that Frankenstein came along. He was living in a house in the Hollywood Hills that was at the top of one hundred steps. <laughs> and I actually went and found the house at one point in my crazy way wow. and found the house up. It was up in Whitley Heights. And um, I didn't have the exact address, but I saw a gate open. It was a Sunday and uh, a realtor was showing this house up there. And so I decided to start walking and I walked up and actually, you know, <laughs> nerdy fan, uh, counted the steps. All right. As I went up and sure <laughs> enough, there were exactly 100 steps, got to the top, there was this little house, and there's a plaque next to the door, and it said, Boris Karloff's home, 1931. And uh, by great That's luck, cool. uh, the realtor was showing the house that day, and I went in and said, oh, I'm, I'm a great Boris Karloff fan. Could I see the inside of the house? And she said, oh, you know, knock yourself out. Go right ahead. And um, so I looked around. But can you imagine coming back to that house after a day on Frankenstein and having to work in that costume and that makeup and coming home, obviously, late at night after taking all that gear off and having to walk up those 100 steps <laughs> before you could relax and have a drink and kind of stretch out and then be back at the studio, you know, four o'clock the next morning to start all over again. I mean, the man had remarkable endurance. He earned every bit of his stardom. And, and now you, you actually interviewed the little girl who the Frankenstein monster tosses into the lake. Marilyn Harris. Yes, Marilyn Harris. And, and, and she, she was lovely. And it was a very sad case. She was a, a very haunted lady. She had had a terrible uh, mother who had uh, beaten her and tortured her and, and uh, a very, very tragic Hollywood story. And uh, under the circumstances, you would think the last thing she wanted to be in would be a horror film, working with a, with a monster. Uh, but she said that, you know, that she went to the studio the morning they went to the lake. They were going to take them out there in limousines. And she went right up to Boris Karloff in his monster outfit and went right up and took his hand and said, may I ride with you to the lake? And he said, would you, darling? And he, she said, oh, please. And so they rode out. And she said they immediately had this bond. This incredible, remarkable bond. It was this mystical bond. And um, that she felt very comfortable with him, very safe with him. That despite, you know, uh, the way he looked, obviously, to be so frightening, that she just was just fell in love with him. And um, they worked together, you know, very, very charmingly, very sweetly. And unfortunately, her mother uh, came along for the shooting of the scene. And when Karloff threw Marilyn in the first time, uh, Marilyn's mother 
was hysterically excited and she screamed, throw her in again, throw her in again. So uh, she really had a, a, a very, very sad life, but she loved Boris Karloff all her life. And I believe it's very interesting that Sarah and Marilyn's son went out there, right, Sarah, to the lake That's right. site? That's mm-hmm. right. Just out of the blue, I got an email from from Marilyn's son, and he wanted to um, be able to do something with her memorabilia, and he contacted me. And it was just so fortuitous because uh, he contacted me just days before this shoot had been arranged out at the lake. And so I said, oh, my goodness, yes, you've got to. I mean, I didn't know where he lived or anything. Turned out he lived in Arizona. And so it was possible for him to come to the shoot. I contacted the people who were going to do the shoot. And they were, of course, just just over the moon that he was, or you know, he had just come out of the bushes, so to speak. And he was available and could make it to the shoot. And it was, he's the nicest man. And 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 there also was a, a show called Monster Palooza that same weekend. And he was able to attend that and meet fans of his mother's wow. and, and discuss with people, um, his mother and his mother's career and, and, and show the scrapbook and everything he'd made and, and recordings of interviews he'd done with her. And, and it, it just, it was absolutely magical. And, and, um, they took photographs of the two of us and floating daisies. And I said, don't you dare throw me in. Don't even think about throwing me in the lake. But, it, I mean, it was just, it was just as, it just so unheard of, such a coincidence, getting this email totally out of the blue. I never heard of him, never knew his name before, and we've stayed in contact. He's just the loveliest of men. Oh, that's great. And, and, you know, it's just so fortuitous for everybody involved. Greg Gill, I have to point out something before we go, before we move on. This is something that I talked about with Greg last night. This is relevant to the conversation. Uh, Greg, what were the dates that the lake scenes were shot with Marilyn Harris? They were September 28th and September 29th of 1931. So 90 years ago today. That's right. Holy God. Okay, I got, I'm going to go kill myself now. <laughs> oh, don't. Just just so, wait. So today today, today is, and, a, is a, a famous anniversary. It is. Yeah. And, it is. and it, what's interesting is uh, Marilyn Harris's love of Karloff as the monster is similar to then years later, former podcast guest Janet Ann Gallo. Yeah. Uh, was the little girl in Ghost of Frankenstein, and she loved uh, Lon Chaney Jr. as the monster. Yeah, that's a fun connection. Yeah, we had Janet, yeah. Janet rest in peace, Janet, and we had her here a couple of years ago. Yeah. Ron, in the, in the documentary, Gilbert brings up the lake scene, and it's in the doc. Now, I, I assume you can't make a, a documentary about Karloff without including that story, because it's such an important part of his, of his history. Oh, sure. Uh, first of all, let me say, Gilbert, thank you for, for having us. I mean, this is great. I, you know, to be able to sit here and talk about Boris Karloff and Frankenstein, and you're not only an incredibly funny man, but you know your stuff. You know Universal <laughs> Monsters. He does. Yeah, so that's I'm, great I to was know. a pathetic kid. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, did you grow up on the East Coast like I did, where you had Zachary as yes, the host of Zachary yeah. and yeah, Chiller, sure. uh, Yeah, all those things. Yeah, I've just great stuff. As a kid growing up, I actually had a monster club, you know, with a bunch of my friends, and we used to meet every week. And then, of course, they matured and got older, but I never did. <laughs> I kept <laughs> collecting monster stuff. And I have everything that I had as a little kid. Do you still yeah, have any of the I, models? I, I don't have them, but I, I used to make the Aurora models. Right. And I'd read famous monsters of film land. Right. And I remember. When I was little, I I saw in the paper that Boris Karloff had died, and immediately I said, "That's Glenn Strange." <laughs> oh, they ran the wrong photo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 They did. And just recently, last night, I watched a different documentary on Karloff, and they showed uh, one Glenn Strange picture. And another time, Lugosi as the monster. Right, yeah. Wow. Uh, Let me answer Frank's question. But before I do, Gilbert, before he died, I heard that he was in the hospital and he was sick. So as a fan, I was 13 years old. I wrote him a a letter saying, I hope you get well. And I couldn't believe it, but I got a note back. It had a postmark from Los Angeles. I opened it up. It's from Boris Karloff. Wow. And he said, I'm fully recovered and back to work. Thank you. And he autographed it. I kept the card and the envelope, and unfortunately, it was dated October of 68, and then he died in February of 69, so only four months afterward, but I treasure that. That's one of my most A, a friend yes. of mine met Karloff, and uh, he gave him his address, and he asked okay. if Karloff could send him an autograph picture, and he received the autograph one day after Karloff had died, and I thought, isn't oh, wow. that the ideal way to get a Boris Karloff <laughs> autograph right there? Right. <laughs> speaking, of ad- speaking of addresses, uh, Karloff lived at the famous Dakota when he when he. Yes, I learned that in, uh, in uh, Greg's book. Yeah. I did not know that either. I learned so much. Right. So let me get to the lake scene. So you're absolutely right. Uh, it was a scene that was very controversial. Uh, Boris Karloff, as the actor, felt it didn't belong in the film. Whale wanted it to be in the film. Um, and eventually, Boris was right. Uh, when they screened the film, they had to take that out. They also had to take out a line when Colin Clive says, uh, my God, now I know what it feels like to be God. Because, again, that was too controversial. That they took out. But years later, they, they put back the scene in, and they put back the uh, line in as well. But it was very controversial well, at well, the time. Well, I thought... Uh, the editing that uh, Universal did made it worse because uh, in the real scene, Karloff is confused and he sees the flowers are floating in the lake and he he assumes she'll float, so he tosses her in. And then he looks like a frightened kid running off that he's done something wrong. And... With the editing, it goes right from Karloff and the girl throwing flowers in the lake to the father carrying his daughter's lifeless body in the village. Yes. Right. You're yeah. right. But as an actor, I, I think that scene where Karloff shows that, that frightening look. It's wonderful. He was not aware. That is really one of those key scenes where that really showed the humanity. Yeah. Of, well, of it showed that the monster's a little kid who doesn't know what he's doing. Correct. 
Right. Greg, what happened after that? After he, we we talked about how he dared to confront or challenge Whale on that. He thought that uh, that he should not, the monster should not be throwing the little girl in the water. That it was wrong for the scene. And uh, I understand the crew more or less sided with Boris. And then there was a, a price to pay. Exactly. Uh, they had to come back to the studio that night, and um, Whale announced that there would be night shooting. They were going to go out on the back lot and shoot the scene where the monster runs up the hill to the windmill with uh, Frankenstein over his shoulder. So they went back there and uh, Whale had Karloff run up the hill with Colin Clive over his shoulder over and over and over and over again all night and doing it over and again. And he had to run up the hill to get away from the bloodhounds and the villagers with their torches. And uh, it it was a terrible, terrible, spiteful thing for Whale to do. Uh, And as Sarah will know, and as Ron knows, uh, you know, Boris had uh, severe back trouble uh, during his lifetime, and that certainly didn't help. Uh, that, that was a horrible thing for Whale to have done. And um, it was, um, I think Whale was kind of losing it a little bit by the end of that picture. He said, it was funny, he said he wanted everybody in that film to have insane passion, as he put it. He wanted Frankenstein to have insane passion. He wanted the monster to have insane passion. I think Whale had some insane passion by the time it was over. Uh, and to have done something like that to Karloff was just inexcusable. And he got away with it at Universal. If that yeah. happened at MGM or Warner Brothers, you know, Jack Warner at Warner's or Louis B. Mayer at MGM would be down there and, you know, ring Whale's neck for having endangered an actor. But uh, Universal, it got by. And uh, and any of you who want to answer this, I, it always seemed of everything I read that James Whale, you know, looked down on Karloff. Which is ironic because... Uh, uh, Whale came actually from a rather poor background, and uh, you could really kind of say that Whale sort of created himself. He, the way Frankenstein created a monster, Whale kind of created himself. He became this this very elegant, uh, sardonic, uh, you know, patrician personality in Hollywood. Like he was almost like an aristocratic Englishman, and he and he gave, gave off this image that that was what he was. That was where he was from. Um, whereas um, uh, Boris Karloff, who came from uh, you know, a, a very a, a higher element of society, shall we say, than Whale did. Uh, never put on airs, uh, certainly about it uh, in 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 Hollywood. Uh, and um, so it was it was a rather strange way for Whale to look at things, uh, considering that you know his own background was was one of uh, rather humble beginnings. And, and one Sarah, thing, that- I every ahead, time I watch Frankenstein, I always think if if I had ownership of this movie i'd cut it out and i think it may have been robert flory's idea and that was the criminal brain yeah that was sort of a mickey mouse kind of thing to put in there because like it was a shortcut for them to make the monster dangerous they'll say well we'll give him a criminal brain and that'll that'll scare the audience and kind of put them on the edge of their seat what's he going to do with now that he has a you know with this criminal brain in his head but he certainly doesn't behave uh you know, as if he's a criminal, he behaves, as we said earlier, he's as if he's bewildered, he's lost, he's confused, he's all these things, but he's not, he's certainly not a criminal, he's certainly not evil. Uh, and um, so, yeah, I think that's a good point you make, Gilbert, about that, that probably could have gone. Mm-hmm. Sarah, was that the source, you think, of his of his back problems, and did his relationship with Whale improve any at, at any point after that, or was it forever soured? Um, I think they was, worked together twice more, obviously yeah. on the Bride and on Old Dark House. Um, I I think that my father um, 
recognized what Whale was doing and why he was doing it. He'd been challenged openly by a, at that point, a bit part player. And, uh, you know, nobody had anticipated, one, the, the success of the film, and everybody had anticipated that Colin Clive, uh, in whom Whale had um, an interesting interest, um, um, they all anticipated that he would be the star of the film. So there was, there was um, resentment on the part of Whale, and my father um, understood what Whale was doing, paying him back for challenging him. He regarded my father as a bit of an upstart. Interesting. Um, except there are there are uh, photographs of the two of them um, having a, a smoke leaning against a railing uh, there at the lake, and there there are shots of them having tea, etc. But um, my father, as as we said earlier, was just so grateful to be working um, in in a film, and nobody recognized the the uh, import of this film and the impact it would have on cinema history or anything. So it was just part of part of the day's work, as far as my father was concerned. But he recognized what Whale was doing. Yeah. I he, think it also, sorry, Frank, no, I think it also had to do with jealousy and with ego. I mean, here, Whale was a celebrated director. He had done Journey's End in, in England. He was very well received. He comes over here. They literally say to him, pick any script you want. You don't get that too often. Do whatever you want. And he chose Frankenstein. And then when... I think he saw Karloff getting all the attention. I mean, he even said, oh, he's just a truck driver. Now, at one time, Boris actually did do that in between acting jobs. But I think he thought that, that Clive and I think he, James Whale, would have been elevated from that film. And, and they weren't. So, Did any of this factor into him not being, and I'm just purely speculating here, because I've always wondered, any of this factor into him not being invited to the to the preview or the premiere, or was it? Do you believe it was just strictly an oversight? Because it's it's rather outrageous. Because there are question marks in the listings at the end. Oh, I think yeah. that was on purpose. Yeah. The question marks was to um, to elevate everybody's curiosity as to mm-hmm. who and what the monster was. I think that was a promotional thing. He got cre- in, in the end rolling credits. He sure. he was given credit. Um, I think. Actually, I I think that that um, my father was a nobody when that film was made, and so I just think that it was an oversight. He wasn't invited to the premiere. I see. I don't think it was deliberate. I really don't. If we could get to Doctor Frankenstein for just a second, Colin Clive looks like he was a very troubled person. He had an awful lot of baggage, the poor man. He really did. He, he had uh, some severe uh, hang-ups. Uh, by the time that he did Frankenstein, he was already a severe alcoholic. He was only 31 years old. Um, he had uh, family issues. He, had, uh, he, he, was, he was heartbroken because his whole life he had, well, his whole early life, he had wanted to be 
a Bengal lancer because his ancestry were all these you know British uh, soldiers and who had served in India, and he grew up with the complete intention of becoming a Bengal lancer, and um, he went to um, the Royal Military Academy in England and was only there a few months, and there was a horse fall and he broke his knee, so that was the end of that. Uh, he drifted into the theater and he really uh, he had a, a fascination with it, but he had terrible stage fright. Uh, which, which of course many actors have, but with him, it was just, you know, incredibly severe, uh, stage fright. So he was making his living in a career that scared him, uh, to, to get up every day or to go in every night to the theater, uh, uh, and, and to stand in front of a camera. Um, and, uh, so it was one of those cases where he was brilliant at what he did, but he was so very, very unhappy doing it. And, um, Lots and lots of hangups in, in the, the biography that I did recently of him. Uh, I go into detail about some of the discoveries I found that were really pretty shocking about his uh, about his uh, young life that kind of, uh, you know, pushed him over the brink. When, when did he die? Was he 36, 37? It, it, was, it was in 1937, and he was only 37 years That's old. What, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, there, there's always you hear a lot of talk about the rivalry and uh, animosity between Karloff and Lugosi. So what, what's the truth to that? Um, Bela Jr. and I have talked about that. And um, Bela being Hungarian and my father being British, they quite naturally had their own personal interests. Um, and, and so it is not unusual that um, when they were not working, uh, together, their off-camera or off-set time was spent doing different things. And today, when when actors work together, long hours together, sometimes months together on a film, it's not unusual that their off-set time is spent doing different things, not seeing one another. And when a film is completed, it's not in the least unusual for actors not to socialize together. Um, it, so the fact that they didn't, that Bela and my dad did not socialize together was not indicative of some uh, personal animosity or personal rivalry. Um, I know that my father had very a very high regard for Bela as an actor, but he did feel that it was unfortunate that he did not master the English language more than he did, and uh, which was the language in in which he earned his bread and butter. But he felt he was a very highly trained and very good actor. And this this a quote Boris Karloff once said, uh, "Poor Bela." He deserved more than he got. Well, that's I'm sure that's true. He felt that he he was a fine actor, but the the one thing that held him back was that he did not his English. Uh, he really never mastered the English language. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Ron. Uh, uh, uh. Tell me, tell me about setting out because we're here to really promote the documentary. Tell me about wh what inspired this project, and tell me the thing that you learned since you knew a lot about Karloff going into it. What was the biggest surprise? Well, the thing that just fascinated about me, and I believe I told this to Sarah the very first time I met her, 
is the wealth of work that this man did. Um, yeah, he was in Frankenstein and, and horror films, but he just loved to work and did so many things, uh, Broadway and radio and television. Uh, he was nominated for a Tony, won the Grammy. It, just, it was just fascinating to dig even deeper into his films. And the thing that surprised me were movies like The Black Room and The mm, Body Snatcher. Great one. Just wonderful. And in fact, somebody, I think David Skull says in, the, in our documentary that he should have been nominated for an Oscar. Uh, for the black room because of what he did. He played, <laughs> he played three parts. He played uh, twin brothers. He played the good brother and the evil brother. But then he played the evil b- brother playing the good brother. <laughs> Gilbert, do you know this film at all, The Black Room? I, it's, it sounds like one of those films I saw when I was a kid, but haven't seen it recently. Yeah. What about The Body Snatcher? Uh, yes. Oh, yes. He knows that, he one, knows right? that one. Yes. And and they brought yeah. back uh, Bela for that one. And that was a, Correct. a wonderful scene between Karloff and Bela. Oh, just wonderful. It was directed by Robert Wise. Oh, Robert Wise had an amazing career, but that was his first film. And the body snap. And of course, it was done for producer Val Luton. And Val Luton just did some great films like The Cat People and whatever. Greg, you know about great, uh, Val Luton and his career, right? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, he was a, he was a brilliant man, and he brought a very sophisticated, very dark, very sexy vibe to the horror films in the '40s. And um, uh, Karloff just loved working with him. Uh, he th- he thought he was very original. He thought that he was very subtle. Uh, they had the same kind of sense of humor. They uh, it's it's interesting that in the Body Snatcher, for example, uh, uh, Karloff is is at times rather funny. Um, he he has a great sense of humor, and his character is is really <laughs> kind of makes you laugh. He's almost you know, I was expecting many minutes to go into a dance at certain times. I mean, he's he's really just amazing, and 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 that that performance really did deserve an Academy Award. And um, uh, and so yeah, he and Luton were a great mutual admiration society. You also said, uh, Greg, in in your book, we were talking about Gilbert's question about uh, about the relationship between Bela and Boris, and you said they were never they never seemed to be closer than they were during Son of Frankenstein. Yes, and it's interesting because. Um, there were there was a very good reason for that. Uh, for one thing, they were playing friends, mm-hmm. if you will, uh, the monster and Igor. All right, and uh, you know the monster finally has a real friend in Son of Frankenstein. He has Beta Lugosi's Igor, and the two of them are just great. They just have this marvelous, wonderful chemistry together. That's there, uh, but also oh, it's Lugosi's finest hour. Yeah, he is terrific. But actually, at, at earlier that year, that was late 1938. Earlier that year, uh, Bela Junior had been born. And of course, we'll let Sarah talk about the event that happened during *Son of Frankenstein* that uh, that made uh, her father and and Carlo uh, 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 made Carlo and Lagosi even closer. Well, I was born on my father's fifty-first birthday, and it was the most expensive birthday present he ever got. <laughs> <laughs> It's sweet because what Bela was Bela Jr. was ten months old at at that point, and you're writing about it in the book, and it's it's nice to read that they have this thing in common that they're sharing, and Bela's buying him a baby a baby uh, gift, and it's very it's it's nice to read about that that they made that connection. Yeah, they're both going home to you know to babies after a day's work on Son of Frankenstein, and uh, yeah, Lugosi got quite emotional about it a short time later. He said. uh, he said, yes, he said, Boris and I often get together and talk about how wonderful it would be if our children met and married one another one day. So um, I don't know if, if, if uh, you ever talked about that with Bela Jr., Sarah, but uh, 
his father was kind of pining for that at one point. It like. <laughs> <laughs> We're friends. We're friends. They're friends. Baylor okay. Jr. and I are good friends. And, and I saw something in one of the documentaries that when Karloff was doing, uh, oh, The Raven, the one with Roger. Uh, Roger uh, Corman. Roger Corman. Corman. That uh, Boris Karloff came home and and said to uh, his wife at the time, I don't know if, if that was. It was my stepmother. Yes. And he said to her, uh, there's a young man in this picture. Could you tell us who? <laughs> Jack Nicholson. He said, there's a young man in this film that's going to really amount to something. And my father spotted Jack Nicholson and, and said he really he's really going to amount to something someday. Wow, he had an eye for he talent. Right too. on that one. <laughs> he really was. <laughs> mm -hmm. There is a uh, there is a real short documentary on the making of the shining. And I'd never seen this before, but they interviewed Nicholson and in his brief interview, he's talking about I take my script and I mark it up and I learned that from Boris Karloff, because that's what he used to do. So, yeah, he clearly acknowledged mm -hmm. that in this documentary. And Boris Karloff, I heard, was the one it was teaching Frank Sinatra how to act. That's that's right. He 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 he's um, helped Frank. Um, well, Frank marked his scripts uh, as my father did, and he helped him uh, with one of his films, too. And And I think he said to Frank Sinatra. Uh, you sing with your voice. You have to learn how to act with your voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, you know, Sarah, read, reading uh, the material, doing the research, the, the word that, that pops out at me about your dad is trooper. You know, he not, not only did he not confront Whale about his bad behavior uh, and, and other directors, but the, the makeup, the endurance, the things that he, the, the physical... Uh, uh, stress that he went through. It, it brings me, I want to ask about the mummy. And I didn't know, and, and specifically the makeup, Pierce's makeup for the mummy. I mean, we know about how he suffered in the Frankenstein makeup, but I didn't know that the uh, the Ardeth Bay makeup had to be melted off his face. Yes, and, and the um, Imhotep uh, makeup, which he was in for the, just that one shoot, um, was horrendously difficult and imagine and and um he uh, at the end of that shooting day he passed out just collapsed on the set because it, he was completely dehydrated the gauze wrapping had just absorbed all his bodily fluids uh in uh, when they when they uh, completed the the preparation of the of the wrapping he pointed out to them that they had neglected to put in a fly. Oh. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so they did have to rectify that. And, and, but then by the end of the day, I, I think it was a very, very long shooting day. And uh, he just collapsed from total dehydration. And, and I heard Karloff... Well, I'm this. This could be a total bull story. I hope it's true that when you were born, 
He rushed to the hospital and his Frankenstein makeup. No. I'm sorry. <laughs> I I thought it sounded too good to be true. It's too good to be true. It's still it's still on Wikipedia, so well, somebody needs to take it down. A, there's a, a fairly well known photograph of my father at the hospital with a nurse holding me and my father dressed rather smartly in one of his sports coats looking at me. I think thinking, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> trying to look adoringly at me, but a nurse holding me at the hospital the day I was born, and and um, um, he was not in his makeup. Sarah, I he asked you this last time, I'm sure, so forgive me. But how old were you when you when it dawned on you? And I'm sure you've been asked this. How how old were you, and how did you find out? How how did it start to dawn on you? who your father was? You know, he was my father. Um, and he didn't bring his work home. Uh-huh. He was very modest and very self-effacing and um, very funny. And he, our home life was very quiet and reserved. And um, he, he, you know, he loved gardening he loved reading he loved animals and he once by the time i was born he was making his third frankenstein film he was established star and he could leave his work at the studio and so um he didn't talk about his work at home what are you going to say to a five-year-old child about your career especially if the genre is the horror genre nothing so um i it wasn't until i was actually it 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 he he was noticed um it in restaurants um but how many places do you take a young child my sure. my parents were divorced when i was 7 and so in school in Beverly Hills, um, a famous name didn't stick out that much, not that much. And, and I went to um, a Miss Buckley's private kindergarten and nursery school or whatever. And uh, um, I'm sure all of you know who uh, C. Aubrey Smith was. Sure. And... and uh, Lady Smith used to babysit me after school some days. And so it was a rather cloistered life, if you like. And 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 I they would just friend everybody who some were famous people, but they they were just friends of my father's, friends of my family. And so uh, there was no I didn't go to movies when I was young, that young. And by the time I, uh, my parents were divorced and each remarried very happily and successfully, uh, and my mother and, uh, moved to San Francisco with, with my stepfather, whom I adored, um, then, then my name stuck out. And then I became aware of my father's fame and, and, uh, the, the notice my last name uh, received, 
But growing up in a household with my father, except when we went to restaurants, um, there wasn't much notice taken. I mean, he was so recognizable, and his voice was so recognizable, but uh, people minded their manners better then. I can remember later in life, um, still growing up, though, uh, it was an experience to ride on an elevator with him because people didn't know whether or not to mind their manners in an elevator or take advantage of the situation. But by and large, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, elbow nudging going on in the (laughs) elevator. But it wasn't until we actually left the elevator that they were pointing and saying, that was Boris Karloff, that was Boris Karloff, you know. But people minded their manners. And so his the degree of his fame and the degree of his recognizability was not really invasive like it would be now, especially now if he came back. But um, I was 19 years old and sitting in my uh, mother and stepfather's living room watching television uh, when I watched Frankenstein for the first time. Interesting. I mean, it just didn't permeate my life, his fame. Um, He never talked about his career. When I'd go and visit my father and stepmother, you know, we did... I mean, I can remember him taking me to the circus, or I could remember him taking me to things he thought I would enjoy. He took took me to a football game one time. I can assure you that people for five rows around us couldn't tell you anything about the football game because they were too busy looking at him. (laughs) One day, my mother went to play bridge and left me in the care of my father, and he'd been shooting... um, uh, Tower of London, where he had less hair than Gilbert does at the moment. <laughs> and um, I'm doing my best to offend you, Gilbert. And so <laughs> he thought it would be a good idea to take, I was about, I don't know, three years old, four, yeah, four years old. And so he thought it would be a good idea to take me out and have my head shaved. <laughs> My mother didn't think that was a good idea when she came home to her little girl with a shaved head. No wonder they got divorced when I was seven. <laughs> However, she, she didn't leave me in his care very often thereafter. I was left with a governess. <laughs> there you go. Of the three top horror stars at that time period, it was like the Lugosi, Lon Chaney Jr., and Karloff. And Karloff seemed to be the one wrestling with the least amount of demons. He seemed the most like a level-headed mentally and emotionally. He was very uh, level-headed. He had, he may have, um, he, he didn't have a, a, a fuzzy childhood um, because he was... Um, his parents died when he was rather young, and he was the youngest of nine children. And he had um, eight, seven brothers and one sister. And uh, he was supposed to go into the counselor service, 
which diplomatic corps, of which he had no intention of doing. And uh, so I think he faced his demons early on and made his decisions early on to go into the film business and um, left home and, and left home and went all the way to America. Uh, actually to British Columbia first for 10 years and, and paid his dues in repertory theater and then made his way down to um, eventually to Hollywood. Uh, so he paid his dues, and, 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 but he was in a career, a profession that he loved, no matter the hardships and or the disappointments. And he stuck with it and... Um, he really felt he was the luckiest man alive to be able to spend his life doing something he loved doing and then be jolly well paid for it. So I don't think he had any real demons, in his, certainly not in his later years. Um, he, had, he, had no, he had no bad habits. I mean, he didn't, he didn't have any ex excesses in his life. He didn't have a drinking problem. He didn't have any drugs. He didn't, you know, he simply didn't have any excesses. He lived a very quiet, modest life and never got caught up in, in being a star or, or into awards or, and I think it was his uh, English background and his English uh, upbringing that stayed with him all his life and why in his later years he spent the last, he went back to England and lived the last 10 years of his life. He was typically British. What were you going to add, Ron? The other difference between the other two, Gilbert, that you brought up, Lugosi and Cheney Jr., is, in my opinion, Karloff loved to work and he succeeded after his success. And as you know, that doesn't happen a lot. Some people get a success and then nothing happens. But Boris, he loved to challenge himself. He loved doing different things. And everything he did, he was wonderful in. So from film, he then went to radio. And then he went to Broadway with Arsenic and Old Lace. And I think the work kept him busy. I mean, they say, you know, when you sit around, you have idle time. That's when the bad habits pick up. <laughs> but he kept working and he loved it. And, and let me say one more thing, too, about the, what a wonderful man this is as far as being an actor. He was one of the founders of the Screen Actors Guild. Yes. And he knew and he remembered what it was like in the beginning of his career. And he knew how people were treated. I mean, believe it or not, when he made Frankenstein and he would sit in that makeup chair for 45 hours, he was not paid. He was not paid until you stepped foot on the set. Well, he made sure that that would change, that people were not treated like that. And he really made a difference, and I think that's one of the best things about being Boris Karloff and finding the Actors Guild. Right, Sarah? Oh, yeah, he was very proud of that. His card number was number nine. Number nine. And he never, never, um, he never talked about it, but I know that was one of the things he was most pleased about, at being involved with. Greg, was that what Ron alludes to uh, uh, him being one of the founders? He he witnessed a lot of of bad behavior on sets. 
certainly Ulmer's, uh, we, we talked about Wales' misbehavior, but certainly Edgar Ulmer's misbehavior on, on the set of The Black Cat, and, and Carl Freund's too. Was, was the mistreatment of actors one of the things that was motivating him? I'm sure it was. I mean, I think he had a very liberal spirit as far as uh, in, in general and, and, you know, a lot of compassion. But he did see some horrible things happening in Hollywood in those early years. It's alluded to uh, in the documentary yes. about Zita Johan being treated so badly uh, in The Mummy. Um, and um, having spoken with her, she said, you know, the one thing, and this was very often the case uh, when you talk to people who worked with him, as she said, the thing that really saved the movie for me was working with Boris Karloff because he was so nice and so sweet and such a gentleman. And um, it was a pleasure to come to work every day, despite Karl Freund, uh, because I know I would be working with Boris Karloff. Uh, so um, there was that. And you mentioned about yeah. Lucille Lund. Yes, that she was very terribly tortured and sexually harassed on The Black Cat. Now, neither Karloff nor Lugosi were aware of this. This was kind of done, you know, secretly. Uh and uh, they weren't aware of it. Until, I don't know if they were ever aware of it. But um, if they had been, you can bet that they both would have really, both Karloff and Lugosi would have really put their foot down and insisted that that, that would stop. Um, yeah, he was, not going to, he was not going to stand for that. He was a very, um, very compassionate person. And, you know, something else to, to mention that, um, that we were getting at a little earlier, and that is that one of the reasons I think that he was so uh, content and happy is that I think he realized how appreciated, how really deeply appreciated he was um, by his peers. Uh, it's it was it was really kind of funny and 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 something I really enjoyed uh, in talking with people who worked with him in the early years is that a lot of the actresses who worked with him in the early and mid thirties really seemed to have a little crush on him. Um, you know, that was more than just though he was such a nice man. It was like, oh, you know, it was he was such a nice man. I mean, okay. I mean, it was. A, <laughs> I don't mean that there was anything, you know, not platonic happening, but uh, but you know, they really they really kind of developed a little crush on him uh, on the black cat. Both Jacqueline Wells and Lucille Lund, who I talked to, said, you know, that uh, they were so unhappy in that film because it was so morbid and it was so awful and it had necrophilia in it and it had a black mass in it and it had all these, you know, corpses hanging in glass cases in it and all this sort of thing that they had to live with every day. But she said he, but uh, Lucille Lund, for example, said he was so funny and he sang her songs and he was so high spirited on the set and just so nice that, uh, you know, he got her through it. Same with Jacqueline Wells. She was so frightened just going to work every day to be in that picture. And she said she got to know Boris and he made the time fly by and she just, she just loved him so much. Uh, Valerie Hobson, who was in Bride of Frankenstein, same thing. Uh, you know, that, uh, you know, she was uh, only 17 years old at the time. And she said, here I was, a, you know, stranger in a strange land in Hollywood and, and on Frankenstein. There he was in this magnificent monster costume and makeup and everything. And yet he was the one that really made me feel at home. He was the one that really made me feel happy and secure and who I looked forward to seeing every day on the set. And he just was such a wonderful man. And uh, Francis Drake, who was um, who was in um, The Invisible Ray with him. Uh, uh, she was really, she really flipped over him. She said, no, oh, he had the most beautiful eyes, the most beautiful brown eyes. You could drown. <laughs> she said very dramatically. <laughs> it, now, 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 Sarah, you have the same dark brown eyes, right? Not quite the same. <laughs> Greg, Greg, reading the books, he seems very protective of, of his fellow actors. Oh, yes. And, uh, Gilbert, Gilbert, we've talked in the past about how May Clark was, was scared in Frankenstein, so he would wiggle the pinky. Yes, yes, I was just going yes. to mention that one. <laughs> yeah, that she was afraid she'd faint during that scene. 
So he had a thing that he waved his pinky around like, it's just me, Boris. That's right. Yeah. It was upstage hand, so the camera wouldn't pick it up. And um, yeah, and uh, her too. She was just a gog over him. So all these, all these actresses just... They responded to him, you know, not just that he was a nice man, but he was a very attractive man that he had, you know, had these beautiful eyes, these beautiful manners, there's all this charm. Uh, he was so funny. Uh, you know, they just loved working with him. And, you know, you could you could tell that, uh, you know, it was really a, a high point in their career to have been a leading lady for Boris Karloff. But those stories continued throughout his entire career. Even uh, Julie Harris yes. just adored him. And Lee Grant had just wonderful mm -hmm. things to say about Boris Karloff. And so did Stephanie Powers. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Too. When he was, uh, yeah. what was the name of that? Mother Muffin. Uh, yes. Mother Muffin. Mother Muffin. Was full uh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he, he told the story on himself that when they finished the makeup and he looked up in the mirror, he said, oh, I look like a two-bit whore. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he became the victim like a lot of people who are, pounced on on that show of this is your life <laughs> oh, that's a great clip it's in the doc well yeah. He, yeah. he had he had uh he and ralph and and barbara and my stepmother were really good friends and they often watched the show and then they'd go out to dinner uh, afterwards and he had gotten ralph to promise that he would never ever make him the subject of the show and I don't know if Ralph got my stepmother to uh, agree to it or if my stepmother got Ralph to agree to doing the show. But whoever it was, really, my father said later that uh, Evie, my stepmother, had sold him out for a washer and dryer. Wow. <laughs> and, he, and, he looked even less happy than Sid Caesar in the parody <laughs> sketch <laughs> on, your show, on your show of shows. Yeah, but you, you know the thing is, though. But Ralph was—I think Ralph was so smart. Ralph Edwards, he had bars and and Evie sit in the audience prior to that, and and again, in the wings, right? No, no, wings. no. But there's one episode, Sarah, where they're in the audience and they think they're going to bars, but it wasn't. They went two rows back, and they honored somebody else. So maybe Boris yeah. thought, okay, we're going to do this again. It's not me. It's somebody else. Well, my father thought he was being introduced. He waved. Right, right. But <laughs> he then waved. when he realized that and face. The, that the ultimate, uh, you betcha life, uh, was when they had Lou Costello on. Yeah. That's tragic. And and he, in, he says this next part like a game show host. You know, like, you've won a million dollars. And he right. goes, uh, and at this date, the worst thing that could happen to any man, the death of his son. <laughs> and it oh, was, boy, yeah. it, talk about horror movies. Yeah. But he does, Boris does brighten up considerably when Jack Pierce walks out. Yes, no, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. He seemed genuinely happy to see Oh, him. yes. And the cricketer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he, he goes. Yeah. The Cricketer and Jack Pierce and the um, man from Anchorage, mm -hmm. Alaska, right. Frank Brink. Those three people. Um, and his school chum, right. his, his old and school I remember chum. Those, those were gems. He says, uh, greatest makeup man in the world. <laughs> I owe him a lot. Right. Yes. 
You know, I thought I knew a lot about Karloff, and I thought I knew a lot about Jack Pierce. I think until I saw the doc and Greg read your book that I I didn't realize how instrumental Boris was in in uh, collaboratively speaking in creating that makeup. Yes, and particularly about the eyes uh, that uh, you know that he wanted the, the the eyes veiled with this kind of what they called lizard eyelids because he didn't want the monster to look too aware. You know, he wanted to look sort of like you know he was just really starting to discover the world. And so the eyes couldn't look too bright. The eyes couldn't look too, uh, you know, conscious of what was going on. And so that he was particularly uh, inventive with that. And, um, you know, again, one of the really great things about that movie is, is that introduction that of course everybody always talks about when the monster comes in and he comes in backwards and turns around and looks at the screen. And of course, you know, he's a monster. He has his electrodes in his neck and he's, he's got all this incredible makeup, but he has beautiful eyes. You know, and, and, uh, you know, he has almost Greta Garbo eyes, you know, and it's like, it's so, it's such an uncanny thing that it makes it all the more scary. I think our friend David Skull uh, makes a great point in the documentary that because of Boris's bone structure, he, 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 it's, it's something that, that suits the look and the makeup so well that he makes the point that no yes. other actor that put yes. on the makeup e- e- ever looked quite as, con- as, quite as convincing, quite as good. No, not at all. Not at all. And, didn't I heard another story that in the back of his mouth, uh, Karloff had like uh, dentures and he he removed mm-hmm. them to make a more skull like face. Yeah, they filled in that like little beauty mark on his cheek on the one side that kind of hollowed it out. That uh, supposedly he took that out was, a bridge. He took out a, a, a bridge. partial bridge and then uh, that created a, a indentation. But he had a partial bridge that he took out. But when you think about that makeup, the camera doesn't lie, as we all know today. And um, that makeup had to be exact every single day. It had to be exactly the same. That speaks to the genius of Jack Pierce. And, Karloff, another thing where the British background comes in, there are photos of it, of him in full Frankenstein makeup uh, sipping a teacup. And he would always yes. have a tea break uh, during the movie. Right. As a matter of fact, they made a special yeah. board where he could lay back because of the costume and the makeup, where he could lay back and have a cigarette and a cup of tea because they were afraid of something happening to, mm-hmm. to the costume. Yeah, the pictures are in Greg's book. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Let me ask a question from a listener of you guys. This is from uh, Gene Beretta. Uh, can anyone talk about Boris's experience with Bogdanovich, who was also here, in one of my favorite films, and that's Targets? Uh, that, that, was, uh, that was a project he was particularly proud of. Greg, can you speak about Targets? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a wonderful uh, – it's not, not his last film, but it probably should be. It was, it yeah. was, a, yeah, it was a beautiful send-off, and, and – uh, Although he's not technically playing himself, he he sort of emotionally and spiritually is. And um, uh, Bogdanovich, you know, understood uh, the whole Karloff persona. He was able to build the film around him. Uh, this wonderful contrast between uh, an, a, an old, tired horror movie star from the golden age of Hollywood and the real-life horror of a sniper uh, in the late 1960s. Um, the film is just brilliant, and I, I know that Karloff was very, very proud of it, and I'm so glad that, that Ron, in the documentary, that you showed that marvelous extended take. It's great. In which Karloff tells that story. I mean, that's just, uh, 
that is just mesmerizing. And it, and it was like two in the morning when he when he really should have been flagging. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one take, and and right through, and uh, it's 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 a magical film, and uh, it's just it's just wonderful that he had that at the end of his life to uh, you know to be so proud of. Yeah, the story is called The Appointment in Samara is the name of the story that he tells in Targets. And uh, yeah, and, yes. and also let me point out that, you know, Boris loved to work with young people. Bogdanovich wasn't the only one. And so he always loved to hear new ideas and new thoughts and work with young actors and directors and writers. So he really did love to introduce new people and work with new people. I just have to bring up the black cat. Because <laughs> we, yeah, we talk that, about no. that a lot. We've done we've done He's almost obsessed four, with the black cat. We're obsessed with it on this show. We've done almost four hundred episodes, as I mentioned to Sarah earlier, and it's come up on this show what thirty, forty times. Gilbert, <laughs> Sarah, I know you didn't see Frankenstein until you said you were a teenager. What, what can you recall your initial reaction to that one? Yeah, to the black cat. <laughs> oh yes, um, I was an adult. Well, if I ever was. And um, a, a mutual friend of, I think you know him, Greg, um, Ron Borst. Yes. Um, came out to the desert and said, Sarah, you have to see this film. And I mean, it's one of your father's best known films. And I, one of the worst kept secrets is I don't like scary movies. <laughs> That's part of why I brought it period. up. <laughs> uh, I know. I know. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> and so, um, and so that this friend uh, um, brought it out to the desert and said, "Now, sir, you have to watch this." And I, of course, I didn't want to. And so we left all the lights on. It was in the afternoon, and it took. Uh, he had to come and retrieve me from the hall <laughs> three times. Wow! <laughs> and um, I've never forgiven him. You know, I mean, he's an ex-friend. <laughs> and I've, um, yeah, I've seen it. Thanks a lot. Um, I've seen it now several times. Each time I I like it less and less because it is, it's abhorrent. It has, uh, you know, it has some real, I don't know how it ever got I, past I, the yeah, censors. Yeah, it's a mystery. There were no censors. There was no code. Um, it's, 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 it's distasteful. Um, it's brilliant. It's, um, I don't like watching my father about to be skinned alive, you know, even up on the big even screen. If ba- even if Bela mispronounces um, how he's going yes. to skin him. <laughs> you know him what I'm going to do to you now, Valimor. I'm going to tear the skin from your body <laughs> bit by bit. <laughs> I, I guess he was trying to say tear, right, Greg? I think so. Frank, do you have I, a I favorite so. line from the, from the Black Cat, Frank? There are so many. Yes. There are so many. Really? Uh, you know, of... Oh, yeah. There's that line <laughs> where uh, David Manor says, oh, that sounds like a lot of supernatural baloney. And he goes... Supernatural, perhaps. Baloney, perhaps not. Oh. My, my favorite one is when he says... Who wrote that? <laughs> Venus, even the phone is dead. Yeah. I always thought it was a black comedy. But <laughs> maybe maybe I missed... Uh, maybe that's just me. Maybe it is. 
and we're going to play a game. Oh, yes. A game of death, if you'd like. How, how did it get past the Breen office, uh, uh, Greg? Sarah makes an excellent point because it, it's, it, it offends on so many levels, and it's 1934. I think Joseph Breen actually thought anybody who goes to see this film deserves everything they get. All right? They just it, it gives them nightmares. They deserve them. They should know better to even go to such a movie. And, uh, you know, he figured if I had to, you know, I'm just going to wash my hands of this. And, you know, you guys want to go on making this kind of awful picture. Plus, I think some of it might have gone over his head. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not sure if he really understood some of the really sick things I, uh, you know, that were in there. And probably, I imagine Universal also did a little double talk with him. I mean, the Black Mass, my favorite lines in the movie are when Carlos reciting the prayers in the Black Mass, that he's yeah. reciting all that Latin. And when you tra- sit down and translate the Latin, the Latin all is gibberish, you know, he's in the com grano salis, which means with a grain of salt. <laughs> and, you know, these other lines he's saying. I'm telling you, it's a comedy. It's, it's, it is a real trip. And um, uh, so I think that, uh, really, I think I think Breen just figured, I mean, when, when he read the script, he came back with like 30 things that they needed to cut. And Universal sent him back, sent him back the script, and had taken out like two of them, all right? And I think Breen figured, okay, if, this, if you want to do something like this, you want to play this game, let this movie blow up in your face, you know, uh, let, let you deal with all the problems from the censors, let you deal with all the, with all the uh, fallout. And, uh, you know, maybe you'll learn a lesson and stop making movies like this. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, it really is. It, it's, it's tremendous. I'm, I'm also very glad they used in the, uh, in the documentary the, uh, the, the Carlos wonderful line about it. He has an intense and all-consuming horror of cats and he has that mark he uses his lisp so beautifully on that word cats you know he lets the s and, and, oh, yeah. and the funny thing there is they call it the black cat it has absolutely nothing to do with uh with the post story post oh, they, they threw that out early yeah so they they threw <laughs> oh, in yeah. that quick yeah. card he has a fear of black cats and they never mentioned it again. Well, Ulmer's making a story about a Satanist based on Aleister Crowley, is he not, Greg? Yes, he is. And I think he, what he had in his mind was this great, magnificent story about the modern incarnation of Lucifer, who was Boris Karloff, fighting out with his avenging angel, who was Beta Lugosi. And, um, you know, I, and I think that uh, Junior Lemley, the producer, allowed him to do it because Junior was fighting with his father, Carl Emily Sr., the founder of the studio at the time. And I think he actually kind of hoped that this movie would give his father a heart attack. Uh, maybe not a fatal heart attack. Not a fatal heart attack, but just a mild heart attack. And uh, it almost did. And, of course, the, you know, they had to put it back into production. I mean, what you're seeing now is the toned-down yes. version yes, believe of it or Black not. Cat. I mean, they actually, yeah, they actually had like three and a half days and nights of retakes uh, to try to get it to the point that it would, uh, that it would, would be released. And, and uh, Lemley Sr., again, the studio founder, said, I will not release this picture until certain things go out. And so they went back and, and, and played around with it and, and took things out. But it was, it's, uh, it, it, whatever it is, that, that both, both Karloff and Lugosi are marvelous in it. Their chemistry in it is it's just terrific. Oh, yeah. And watching the two of them together... Uh, in that, in which they're you know, just evenly matched and, 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 and going at each other. They, they just are, you know, they both look like they're ready to devour each other uh, all the way through it. And, uh, you know, in that way, it's a And spectacle. usually I get angry. From a plot point of view. Usually <laughs> I get angry when a movie, when it has a scene or two that just make no sense. Black Cat beginning uh-huh. to end makes, makes no, no sense. sense <laughs> and it totally works. <laughs> 
It does, isn't it? Yeah, and it's crazy that within it, in its, in its own mad, perverse way, it's totally, totally works. Yeah. Let's bring yeah. up something happier for Sarah than than that experience. <laughs> Sarah, arsenic, arsenic, and old lace, yeah. which uh, which Ron uh, uh, brought up before, uh, and things I learned from doing research. I had no idea that your dad suffered from occasional stage fright. Oh, he did. He said he he suffered from it every time he set foot on the stage. But he said that is. That is so good because it keeps an, an actor on his toes. And, um, um, oh, gosh, who was it? He said, um, Alfred Lunt. Um, he said he, he, he'd been, he was asked in a marvelous interview um, if he um, was a method actor. And he said, well, I won't tell you really what I think about method actors and but he said, my approach to the stage is, um, I'm going to misquote it badly, I'm sorry, but take a deep breath, uh, you check your fly, and you go on stage and try not to bump into anybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and um, uh, my, But my father did suffer from, uh, from, from um, stage fright. It, it kills me that none of us got to see that performance. Him and Arsenic and Old Lace. And then oh, when you I see know. the movie, the movie suffers, and no, nothing against Raymond Massey, but the movie suffers for the fact that he's not there and not playing that joke, that wonderful joke. Oh, yes. I know. I know. They, where it's like, he said I looked like Boris Karloff. Yeah. That perfect line. and But, uh, you know, it, it it is preserved on television. Ron, in the doc, in, in the doc, he's, uh, uh, I think it's Greg being interviewed, actually, and, you're say- and, and Greg's saying that he wanted no part of this when, when, when approached, coming to Broadway. What, what do you think changed his mind? Well, no, you, no, you're absolutely right. When he was first offered the part, and again, that, this proves what a, uh, I think a wonderful man he was. He, he says, but I'm not a, a real stage actor. I'm a film actor, and Broadway, you know, that's, he actually thought that he was beneath that. I mean, as good as he was, he hesitated. He did not believe that he could have pulled it off. But then he said, no, I want to make sure that these parts are, you know, there are parts that are just as equal as mine and and that it's, you know, taken well. And then, of course, the line that sold them is when they said, at one point you say, I killed the man because he said, I look like Boris Karloff. Now, in our documentary, we actually have a recording of Karloff saying that on stage and getting that laugh. It's not the Broadway version, but it's one of the versions he did. And when you hear that laughter, it's just so great. That's and, valuable. And the other thing, too, that he felt that once he, he did Arsenic and Old Lace, he actually said he went back to his dressing room and he says, you know what? I have finally married. I really feel I've made it now as an actor because I've accomplished something and I, I have a hit on Broadway. So that was nice. I found it amazing too, Greg, in your book that he felt insecure after the Frankenstein performance. He thought, "Is this going to is this going to ruin my career?" He had anxiety. Yes, it. it, uh, it he, he, yeah. Well, what, what was going to happen? I mean, he wondered how long could this go on, and 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 of course, there was always the worry with all the actors who played horror roles that eventually they were going to somehow come off looking foolish. You know, they 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 wouldn't be credible. They would the audience would laugh at them. This was always a big fear that they that they had, and. You know, maybe the next horror character that he would be given to play, he wouldn't get on top of it and it would, you know, it would be a disaster. And so he was very worried. And, um, you know, I think that it must have been a very interesting time for um, for for Karloff and for Sarah's mother 
for him to have come along with his sudden overnight stardom uh, as Frankenstein's monster, which is the strangest role you can imagine, and then to go on to play you know, Fu Manchu and to be play the mummy and all this sort of thing. And I, I, can, I, I, I don't know, but I can imagine him coming home at night from work and sitting down with, with, uh, with Dorothy and saying, you know, how long can this last? I mean, <laughs> do, do you think I can really keep pulling this off? And I, I, I don't know, Sarah, did your mother do a lot of hand-holding, do you think, during those years with, with trying to help him and feel secure with the, the new stardom? Or? I, I don't know. I just, um, I think she must have encouraged him, uh, even before Frankenstein, to keep mm-hmm. at it and keep at it and keep at it because he had so many disappointments. Yeah. And uh, along the way, and so many days of going down the hill um, from where they lived and coming back, and there was nothing, nothing, nothing. And um, and he, you know, he took odd jobs and, uh, rather than go back into the uh, roles of an extra. Once he got to the part of uh, the point of being a a bit part player. Um, and, uh, in interviews, he would, uh, he has said, had said that, that he, he knew it would be wrong to go back to just to be working in, in, in the industry to go back yeah. to extras. But, um, I mean, he just stuck with it. So I'm sure that she encouraged him a lot, mm-hmm. uh, during those, uh, years before Frankenstein. And then I think, um, uh, she probably enjoyed the 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 celebrity uh, the the fun of being uh of his stardom uh with more ease than he did because she had had a comfortable upbringing uh-huh. and was more comfortable in that lifestyle than than he had ever lived mm-hmm. and so um I think she probably encouraged him to relax in it mm-hmm. more than he mm-hmm. was brought as, up as we, as we wind down here, i got a, one, uh, one more question from a listener. Pete Nelson, what was, uh, to Sarah, to your knowledge, what was his favorite performance, one he was proud of? Ron, Ron mentioned his TV work. Can, can we say the Grinch was one that he was particularly proud of? <laughs> My father, who never brought his work home and never really talked about his work, uh, one night, my phone rang, and he um, and, and this was extraordinary for him. Uh, he brought his. Uh, he called me, and he said, "I have just done something that I think you and the boys and I had two sons, and they were just little guys at the time." Uh, and he said, "I I think maybe you and the boys might enjoy." Um, I think it's um, pretty good, uh, pretty good, and um, I think if you might, you might enjoy sitting down and watching it. It's going to air tonight. It's called it's Doctor Seuss, and it's called How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And I think maybe you and the boys might, the boys might enjoy watching it. Only time ever, ever. He called and suggested, talked about wow. something he'd done and suggested we watch it. So he loved doing The Grinch. He was My so delighted. And, and um, he, um, he, he, 
when he knew about the Grammy, um, he was in England, and he asked his agent, Arthur Kennard, to go and accept the award for him. And he wasn't into awards at all. And so Arthur did. And the next time my father came over from England to uh, Los Angeles, he went to uh, Arthur's uh, office about work. And um, and Arthur said, here, Boris, here's, here's your Grammy. And he held it out. My father took it and looked at it and turned it around. And he said, well, looks like a bloody doorstop. <laughs> <laughs> and he took it. And he walked over to Arthur's door, office door, and put it down as a doorstop. And he left it there. Didn't even take it with him. Wow. Yeah. And and he was never, ever, like, embarrassed or bitter about being identified as the Frankenstein monster. Well, he, he, he realized, he referred to him tongue-in-cheek a bit as his best friend because he realized the pivotal difference that that role made in, to his life, both personally and professionally. And he, one of the most frequently asked questions of him was, do you mind being typecast? And he said, it's a, only a foolish actor who minds being typecast, because if you're fortunate enough to find, a, a, he said, a line of country for which you're recognized, be very grateful. Because if if your name, your face comes up when a certain type of casting is being done and your face or name comes to the forefront, if you've established a trademark of some sort for a type of role, you're very lucky. And do never, ever resent it or or... Or just simply be grateful for it. He said, uh, young people play young roles, uh, romantic roles are played by a certain type of person, and always, always be grateful that you're known for a type of role. And he was always grateful for that role and what the difference it made in his life. And he never minded being typecast. He said, a shoemaker should stick to his last and a plumber can't act, and an actor can't fix a sink. That's nice to hear. Last question from me. Uh, Ron, why do you think uh, we're still talking about Boris Karloff all of these years later, 50 years after the man is gone? Because he was excellent in what he did, and his work shows it, and his films and his TV work has lasted, and he left a mark. I mean, if you look just at three things in his career, he was the monster in Frankenstein on film, then he did Arsenic and Old Lace that was written just for him. And then he did How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Actors would fight their whole career to have one of those things. And he had all three. So that's why he lasts. He really is heads above anyone else. And the best one that can tell you that for a fact is Sarah, because she travels all over the world yes. and gets to see that and hear that. I'll get to Sarah in a second. But Greg, favorite Karloff performance and the same question. Why, why is this? Wonderful performer, still relevant, a, a half century after he left us. I would have to say the original Frankenstein. And I think that the reason he's so well-remembered is because he could take a role like the Frankenstein monster and make it so moving and make it so identifiable for the audiences watching the film. 
that it was like a little miracle of acting that he could pull off. Uh, same thing with the mummy, for example. He took the mummy role, as grotesque as it was, and he turned him into this, you know, uh, lover character who is, you know, this doomed lover wandering, you know, That's a the great world. performance. Great performance. And uh, the body snatcher, again, you know, this repellent graveyard rat, as he's called in the, in the movie. And yet he has uh, these, these very witting qualities and this super personality and, and all this sort of thing. And so he could... In, no matter what the role was, he could invest it with humanity so that the audience could identify with him. And so they, were, they, they loved him for that. And so that was why. That was why he was such a well-loved actor is because he could play these outrageously grotesque roles and make them identifiable for people. Sarah, sa- same question. Hmm. I think due to his fans, uh, I know due to his fans, his fans recognize the man behind the monster they recognize the quality and humanity of the man in every role he plays children understood that the monster was the victim and not the perpetrator that's why little maria took his hand um that his his fans um always have great respect and reverence for him and fondness for him um i think because of the variety of his the his body of work um from um uh, broadway television children's albums film uh radio uh, he had a huge amount of each of those um and uh, and the the kindness and humor and humanity of the man himself comes through in each and everything he ever did, professionally and personally. He was, my godmother wrote a biography uh, about my father, and she said almost to a person that she interviewed, they would preface their remarks by saying, Dear Boris, and that's what she titled the book. And I think the quality of his work and the quality of the man is why we're still talking about him today. And what would he think of all this attention? Do you know? All these all these years later, knowing that his legacy, knowing that his name has lasted, that his films have endured, would he be would he be tickled? Oh, he he he'd say, "Oh, for goodness' <laughs> sakes, what's the big deal? I'm the, I'm the lucky one. I'm the lucky one. Don't be so common." Wow! 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 <laughs> Gil, if you don't have anything else, I'm going to get to the plugs. Okay. Let's start by plugging this. <laughs> let's pl- start by promoting this wonderful documentary that Sarah is in, that Greg is in, that Ron wrote. And Ron, how's it being received? Very well. We're we're so happy and so thrilled. Um, the reviews have been fantastic, terrific. I really feel it's it's what you would call a critically acclaimed documentary. Uh, the, the people behind it have been wonderful. Shout Factory and Upper Abarama, uh, just wonderful people to deal with, and we're so happy and thrilled. And Thomas Hamilton, who also was involved with this as well as directing the film, he couldn't be here. He's in London, just but let's shout out Thomas. Just yeah, just, just great, great work, and really, uh, it really turned out the way I wanted it to be. And I'm really happy with the end result. Good, congratulations. And we, Thanks. I, Gilbert, I was, I was happy to see so many of our podcast guests in the doc. The late Dick Miller, or the late Orson yes. Bean. Uh, Roger Corman, David, Leonard Malton, Sarah, every everybody turns up in there. Wonderful, wonderful film, 
and I hope everybody sees it, and we're going to promote it like crazy. Uh, Greg, Ron. Boris Karloff, the man behind the monster. And Greg is in it. Greg is in it, too. Yes, yes playing, playing in theaters this. across the country. And Greg, what's, uh, what's coming up uh, book-wise? What's coming up project-wise? Uh, we have uh, actually have a novel coming out um, called uh, Frankenstein's Witch, St. Lizzie, Pray for Us. Uh, which takes place in 1931. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, you can imagine, you know, what is happening if it's taking place in Hollywood in 1931. Uh, I have another film book, uh, history film book coming out, Angels and Ministers of Grace Defend Us, which has, has 13 chapters in it about various uh, horror and fantasy and melodrama-related topics. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm Good. staying and, busy. And pe- people have to get Greg's books. We'll, we'll, we'll push them on social media and... Uh so much wonderful history, and he interviewed everybody. Well, I tried. Tell, tell us quickly, because we alluded to it. Tell us about Elsa Lanchester teaching you to hiss. <laughs> How about that? No, is that a distinction? How about that? Yeah, we went to see Elsa Lanchester. I'd interviewed her for the book It's Alive way back when, and uh, we went to see her, and I think she you know, realized that I was really in awe of being in her presence, You know that, that, and she was really kind of enjoying the fact that I was you know, just standing there all wide-eyed looking at her and all this, and I asked if I could uh, you know, talk to her about... Uh, about taking your picture, and she <laughs> she reached up and messed up her hair, sort of like the Bride of Frankenstein. First of all, to pose for the picture, and then later she talked about uh, you know the hiss, and she said, "Let me let me show you how I did it." And she said, "No, it's very much. It's sort of like you're trying to to blow your nose, but there's nothing in your nose, so you kind of blow through your nose and your mouth at the same time." And she gave me this very very you know uh, complete coaching on how to hiss like the Bride of Frankenstein. So she and I. St- she and I stood in her living room in Hollywood, and we both hissed at each other for probably five minutes, and it was it was great. Yeah, loved it. <laughs> and Karloff refused after Son of Frankenstein to play to put on the Frankenstein makeup ever again. But then he showed up uh, late in life to do an episode of Route sixty six. That's right, with Cheney Jr. and Peter Laurie. And he got into the Frankenstein makeup for that. That's right. And he played in a ball game, in fact, in 1940, a celebrity baseball game in 1940 in Hollywood, and uh, put on the whole monster makeup. Jack Pierce put it on him and got him all dressed up and made up, and he went out and and hit the ball, and all the infielders ran away in terror, and he ran away and got a, got a home run. So. <laughs> and, and, Gil, before we sign off, I promise Sarah and Greg that you would, uh, this is not a Karloff film, but it is a universal classic. I promised uh, uh, a Maria Unspanskaya impression. The way you walk is thorny through no fault of your own. But as the rain enters the sea, the sea enters the stream. So tears go on to a predestined end. Find peace for my soul. Woo. I have chills. And, oh, and, and I'm sorry if I misquoted some of that. Uh, also, even a man who is pure at heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Beautiful. I've never seen anyone dare imitate Maria Uspinskaya. That is, yeah, bravo. Wonderful. <laughs> it's more popular than The kids love it. <laughs> Gilbert likes to say. Yeah. We want to thank Sarah and Greg and Ron and uh, 
Greg's uh, very patient and wonderful wife, Barbara Mank, who was a big help. Uh, Rich Heron, who's done us a huge solid by going to Sarah's house to help Sarah. Our friends Jim McClure and Dan Spaventa. Richard Abramowitz, who's been a help through this. Uh, Jared Piantadosi, who helped uh, with research. Everybody pitched in for this one. Uh, God, this was a treat, huh, Gil? Oh, uh, yeah. Anytime you, all three of you, want to come back and talk monster movies, uh, anytime. But let's promise, Sarah, we won't bring up the black cat ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good. Can can I bring up um, Frankenstein 1970? Or young Frankenstein. Oh, now, yes. Gilbert, when you talk about that film, I know a lot of people don't like that film, Frankenstein, 1970. But when Boris is down in the crypt and he gives that speech, that monologue, oh, that's gorgeous. Yes. That's great acting. Oh, he's too, he yes. does that great. And it's such a it bad is. movie. And he does <laughs> a yeah, great it job. It really is. <laughs> and the next time you're watching Blazing Saddles, notice uh, Robert Ridgely's impression of Boris. Sure. As the executioner. Yeah, yeah. From uh, from Tower of London, right? <laughs> That's all I got. This was a this was an absolute thrill. Thank you guys for for patiently enduring all the tech and all the challenges, and to the team, uh, it takes a village. Everybody that helped uh, make this possible. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you. Happy Halloween, you. everyone. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Yeah, happy yes, Halloween. Happy Halloween. And, happy uh, Halloween. and uh, Boris. Uh, the, the gifts the gifts that he gave us just uh, continue. You know, I'd never seen Mask of Fu Manchu. Well, you got to. Uh, it's it's wild. <laughs> for Myrna Loy alone. Yes. It's impossible for the man to give a bad performance. <laughs> so thank you all. <laughs> all right. Gil, you want to sign us off? And this has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with his co-host, Frank Santo Padre, <laughs> and our guests were Gregory Mank. And Ron McCluskey. And of course, Sarah Koloff. <laughs> I wish you guys could see Sarah laughing. Happy Halloween, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you all. Bless you all. Bye. I'm not so good in a crowd, but when I get you alone... You'd be surprised. He isn't much at a dance, but then when he takes you home, you'd be surprised. He doesn't look like much of a lover. But don't judge a book by its cover. He has the face of an angel, but there's a devil. In his eye, he's such a delicate thing. But when I start him to squeeze, you'd be surprised. He doesn't look very strong, but when you sit on his knees, you'd be surprised. At a party or at a ball, I've got to admit I'm nothing at all. But in a Morris chair, you'd be surprised.
not so good in a house, but on a bench in the park, you'd be surprised. I'm not so much in the light, but when I get in the dark, you'd be surprised. On a streetcar or in a train, you'd think I was born without any brain. But in a taxi cab, you'd, you'd be, be surprised. surprised.